Hi there, and welcome to the Credo Fireside Chat, connecting you with interesting people and more personal investment talks. Today's podcast is more academic than usual, as Credo's own Ainsley Cho, head of multi-asset portfolios, speaks with Gerardo Riley, co-CEO and chief investment officer of Dimensional Fund Advisors. They're quanti, they're techie, and they're both certainly data-driven. Listen how they distinguish real signals from background market noise. This is your podcast. Please enjoy. Welcome to another Fireside Chat hosted by Credo Wealth. For those of you that don't know us, Credo is an independent wealth management business founded in 1998 with assets on advisory of over £4 billion and over 7,000 clients across the UK, South Africa and the rest of the world. I'm Aisy Toe, head of multi-asset based here in London, and it really gives me great pleasure to introduce our, our guest today. Gerald O'Reilly is a co-CEO and CIO of Dimensional Fund Advisors. We manage over $600 billion globally and are celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. He's also co-chair of the firm's research committee and a member of the investment committee, and he's been with Dimensional since uh, 2004, having also held roles as vice president and head of research. Prior to joining Dimensional, uh, Gerard obtained his PhD in aeronautics from uh, the California Institute of Technology, and he's a master's in high-performance computing from Trinity College Dublin, where he also was a recipient of the foundation scholarship for, for his undergraduate, I believe, um, in his, his native uh, country of Ireland. Um, so, uh, Gerard, uh, welcome and thanks so much for, uh, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Ainsley. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you today. Although we don't have a fire beside us, we have offices in the background, but still, uh, you know, we'll make do. <laughs> yes, I've, I've got some rare, roaring uh, aircon in the background, so, so that'll, <laughs> that'll have to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, where are you uh, joining us from? I'm in Austin, uh, so that's where the uh, firm's headquarters are uh, in Austin, Texas. Uh, so uh, it's Probably a bit warmer here today than it might be uh, in the UK, but who knows? Uh, we have a pretty toasty day on our hands today. But uh, yeah, join you from Austin. Mm, perfect. And, and you were you were born and raised in Ireland. Can you tell us about your journey and how you ended up in in finance and at Dimensional? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was born in Ireland, grew up in Ireland, and uh, went to undergrad and did a master's degree at Trinity College there in Dublin. And in 98, I came over to the US to go to grad school at Caltech uh, in California. Uh, it's in Pasadena, which is pretty close by Los Angeles. And uh, did aeronautical engineering there at Caltech. And while I was uh, doing uh, that, uh, that uh, degree, kind of enjoyed a lot the mathematics side of things, the computer modeling side of things, and was looking around for, well, what might I do next? and uh, happened to come across a firm like Dimensional. And uh, Dimensional has this kind of academic pedigree where you know, a lot of what we do is based on you know, findings from academia. At the same time, it's kind of that nexus between academia and uh, practical impl implementation. And so that was quite appealing to me. So it had kind of the theoretical underpinnings, uh, but the work that you got to do uh, kind of could impact people uh, very, very quickly in the real world. Uh, so joined Dimensional in 2004 when I had finished my PhD and, and it's been a, a great ride since. really enjoyed kind of learning more about finance because I hadn't had any background in finance uh, before joining the firm. Uh, but as I said, it's been, it's been a, a wonderful journey uh, to kind of learn more about finance and see what your projects do and how they impact uh, real world investors. So, so it's, it's been fun. Mm. 
Yeah, well, you're one for a man so far. It's, it's uh, quite rare these days, I think. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. you're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's been good. It's, mm. it, it's been, it's been uh, a lot of fun. A lot of work, but uh, I think a lot of fun. Mm, perfect. Well, and, you know, we're very honoured to, to, to have you join us today and, and delighted to discuss sort of loosely the um, the, the importance of intellectual rigour in, in investment research, as a sort of, uh, I'm sure our conversation will, will take us sort of many areas. Um, but but the, the, the reason I mentioned that is, is one of the issues with um, analysing financial data, as you know well, is it's notoriously noisy. So uh, there's a, lot, a low signal to noise ratio, uh, which leads a lot of investors to be fooled by randomness when, when they're looking at historical data. Uh, and there's many, many directions we can go on, the, on this topic. But maybe if I start with broader asset classes, uh, and I'm sure we'll go deeper into equity factors and, and things later on. Um, so so in, in mainstream financial media, they, they spend a lot of time and energy uh, focusing on the economy, so economic growth, inflation, um, levels of sovereign debt, uh, and, and their effect on the equity markets or uh, people's um, hypothesis about, uh, about their effects. Um, but, but from a research process perspective, how do you approach formally testing uh, relationships between, say, the economy and, and some of the variables I mentioned and, and markets um, in, in a rigorous fashion? I think that the first point, and that's probably one of the most important points, is to come up with a viewpoint on what you think markets actually do, what you think prices represent. And because you have to have that kind of theoretical underpinning or a framework so that you can actually conduct the tests in a rigorous fashion. And so when we think about market prices, so the prices of publicly traded stocks and bonds, uh, basically they're forecasts of the future. And there's very little debate uh, that they are forward-looking. Uh, they're based on expectations of what cash flows a particular investment opportunity might yield to the investors and the risks and uncertainties associated with those cash flows. So that's kind of first off, you have to get your uh, Definition, I guess I'll call it right. A price is a prediction of the future of a publicly traded security. So then the question becomes, okay, all those variables that you mentioned, whether it's inflation or GDP and so on and so forth, uh, there's no doubt that those can impact the performance of certain companies within the economy and uh, broad, broadly the overall kind of opportunity set uh, for companies in the economy or this, the the uh, bonds of those companies in the overall economy. So that, I think there's very little debate uh, around. But the question then becomes, if you think about prices as a prediction of the future, and then you're going to come and you're going to say, okay, I think that the GDP growth next year will be X or Y. The question is not really, is that a accurate prediction of what GDP growth is? If you're going to try use that information as it is often used to say, should I be overweight stocks now? Should I be overweight bonds now? Should I be overweight a particular security now? Basically, the question is really, what is the prediction that's already in security prices? And is your prediction better or worse? Now, the first part, you can't disentangle. You don't know exactly what the prediction of future economic growth that's built in security prices uh, are or you don't know exactly what uh, the prediction of inflation, you have a better idea with inflation than GDP growth uh, because you can compare real and nominal bond yields and that gives you an idea of break-even inflation, which is not a perfect prediction of inflation. It just tells you something about what it has to be to break even uh, and be indifferent to the uh, payout from a nominal versus a real bond. So I think that's, that's the important uh, point and the important part that you would want to test. So when we run things like Let's say I were to give you perfect foresight. 
I were to tell you every year, this is what next year's GDP of every country around the world is. And I'm going to give you that information, perfect foresight, perfect forecastability. Can you then use that information to select which countries you want to invest in at the beginning of the year, such that you may outperform a strategy that maybe market cap weights all of those countries? And the answer is no, you don't see evidence of that. Why? Because while I'm giving you perfect foresight, the real question is, how much better is that perfect foresight than what you already have built in to the returns of stocks and bonds? So in any given year, you may do better, but over the long pull, uh, you don't see much evidence. And it's the same when it comes to inflation or interest rates. When you look for relation between changes in interest rates, changes in inflation and equity returns, whether you use monthly, quarterly, annual, which is kind of typical frequencies, you don't find a strong relation. And again, it all comes back to what you really want to understand is what's the prediction and then is your prediction better or worse? And that's a, a pretty challenging thing to do, largely because you can't disentangle what the prediction really is about the economy that's built into stock prices uh, or bond prices. Mm. So then quoting Lord Keynes, it's expecting the expectations of others, and not, not just uh, what the news is today. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, perfect. Um, uh, I guess more more of a broader question. Um, so, so Dimension is well known for looking at uh, very long term data sets when, when, when doing their analysis. Um, how, how do you weigh sort of more recent history, which maybe has more similarities with, you know, from a technological and social perspective with today versus the distant past, which, you know, may actually have more, um, should we call it economic environments that, that look similar to, to today? Versus, you know, when, when you look over 10 years and, and, and a lot of things don't, don't move so quickly. How, how do you think about the, the limits in the amount of information one can glean from, from looking at history? I think there's some things uh, that stay the same and some things that change. And you have to have a kind of a good framework of what stay the, stays the same and what changes. In the end of the day, uh, what do you get compensated for, for investing in stocks or investing in bonds? You get compensated for bearing uncertainty. And when you look through time and you say, does technology decrease or increase the amount of uncertainty uh, that you're facing when you're investing in stocks or bonds? And in certain instances, it may decrease, but in many instances, it probably is the same or even greater. So, for example, if you go and you put yourself back 10 years and you say, OK, how might technology change the landscape of companies around the world? Well, there's a ton of uncertainty associated with who might be the winner, who might be the loser and what the impact to overall economic growth and so on and so forth may be. So that uncertainty is there regardless of the technological environment that you sit in and regardless of the economic environment that you sit in, the future is inherently uncertain. Because it's uncertain, then we think that people need compensation to bear the risk that they face with that uncertainty. So, for example, if I were to invest in bonds versus very or in stocks versus versus very short date, uh, short dated government issued debt. So you say there's very little uncertainty about what the value of that government issued debt if it's like you know six months or a year, uh, six months or a year from now. There's very little uncertainty, especially if it's a high credit quality government. Where there's a lot of uncertainty about what the value of those stocks may be six months or a year from now. And so effectively, we, we think about it as, well, people demand a higher expected return to bear that uncertainty. And that demand is built into the prices that they're willing to pay. If the expected return is not high enough, 
for all that uncertainty, they're not willing to pay the price. And so prices have to go down in order for expected returns to go up. So people are willing to bear that uncertainty. So that's one part that stays the same in my view, regardless of uh, technology, regardless of the economic environment, that there's uncertainty. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, but there's uncertainty. Uh, and that's true throughout time. That's important because as you look at long run data, basically what long run data are able to tell you, which is what have uh, the uh, historical average and uh, returns been for bearing that uncertainty. And in as much as that gives you an estimate of what the true expected return for bearing the uncertainty is, it's, it's very, very helpful. Now, short term can also be helpful. And this is where I think that more of the micro comes into play because it's absolutely the case that accounting practices may change over time. It's the case that market microstructure may change over time. And those things are important inputs into how you take an investment proposition and then make it come to life in the real world. So for example, if you have a whole country that moves from gap reporting standards to IFRS, right? So something like that, that change. Okay, you've got to look at what that means for book values, what that means for income statements, what that means for earnings and so on. So that feeds into the data set that you're going to use and you have to be uh, familiar with that. Market microstructure might change because of technology. And we've been through massive changes with market microstructure. We may go through more changes with market microstructure as things like Bitcoin and so on, uh, are not Bitcoin, blockchain, I should say, uh, become a, a maybe a more efficient way to execute uh, trades and so on between people. So that may change in the future. But for sure, if you're going to be executing trades in the marketplace, you have to be very familiar with what's going on right here, right now, what's the latest technology. So I've always looked at it as some things are kind of, they remain the same. People demand compensation for bearing uncertainty. If what's expected comes to pass, they get paid that expected compensation. If something unexpectedly good comes to pass, then they get an unexpectedly good outcome. If something unexpectedly bad comes to pass, they get an unexpectedly bad outcome. And that I think is going to remain true for a long time, uh, as long as there's uncertainty uh, with respect to the future. We saw that when it came into COVID, there was an unexpectedly bad shock to the economy and prices were down quite dramatically at the start of 2020. And then the economy uh, here in the US and elsewhere around the world had an unexpectedly, I would say, good recovery. And the returns, especially for small cap stocks, were very, very high over the subsequent 12 months if you go from like March, April uh, of 2020 to March, April of 2021. You know, you had small value stocks in the US up close to 100%. I mean, you had these types of, of numbers. So uh, those things, uh, some, some things stay the same, same, some things change. And I think it's important to have a good framework to know which is which so you can do the right type of analysis and apply it in the right way. If you look at the past 10 years, I'll give you an example. If you look at the past 10 years and you say, has the value premium changed? changed? We'll get into that in a moment, but the value premium is the excess return of stocks with low prices relative to fundamentals versus high prices relative to fund models. What's the excess return of those low price stocks? You'd say, eh, there's almost nothing we can say about the uh, expected premium just by using 10 years worth of data. But there's plenty that we can say and that we've learned about the volatility and potential drivers of outperformance or underperformance over the short run of uh, those particular premiums that can help you uh, design better investment strategies. Hmm. Perfect. No, I think that's a very interesting way to frame it. And you've got the expected component and the unexpected component. And 
perhaps you know in terms of short-term forecasts etc people are trying mixing the two and then and, and maybe focusing too much on on, on the unexpected which uh, you know, if you get right is great but but can be more difficult um, yeah, in that sense and so so you know uh, perfect um perfect segue on onto on the equity factor side which obviously um you know, uh, dimensional have some very uh, high profile um academics on on their advisory panel for and 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 maybe um uh, maybe that'd be quite good just just for for our audience who, who might be slightly um uh, less familiar it, maybe can you, you can describe sort of the uh, in terms of the farm french three factor model which is obviously one of the most famous uh, factor models out there and and, and spawned this um the, the whole sort of factor investing uh, um, uh, area of research if you like could you could you could you um, describe the broad findings of that academic paper and, and really how that led you, um dimensional to, to in terms of uh, their from a portfolio perspective what what um how how, how they uh, build their investment strategies yeah, we'll absolutely do that, Ingsy. And I would also, you mentioned a good item there, which is, you know, the academic pedigree and, and what uh, we have uh, done in the past. And I'll just give a little bit of background before we get into the 92 paper that you're referencing on the three-factor model. And, and that background is that uh, when David uh, first uh, began the firm, that's David Booth, back in uh, the early 80s, uh, 81 was when the firm was founded. So we're going through our 40th anniversary, as you mentioned. Uh, he had an observation, and the observation was that when you looked at institutional investors, that they had broadly diversified exposure to large cap stocks, but not to small cap stocks. And that was something that was missing from the marketplace. So he went and he had been to the University of Chicago. He had gotten his MBA at the University of Chicago. Uh, so he went back to the University of Chicago and said, okay, uh, to folks like Professor Fama, uh, who's a subsequently won a Nobel Prize, uh, is there anything that I should be aware of from the research perspective about why somebody wouldn't want to hold uh, these types of stocks in a broadly diversified fashion? And to the contrary, at that time, uh, Professor Fama said, no, there's actually research coming out uh, that suggests that small cap stocks have higher, have had higher average returns than large cap stocks and higher expected returns than large cap stocks. And so that was back in 81. And so at that point, uh, when David was trying to, you know, think about uh, how how to form the company, and he got together with Rex Singfield, who was also an alum from the University of Chicago, they basically worked down the halls of Chicago. And if, if your board was open or your door was open, uh, you were offered a, a board seat on the mutual fund board. So uh, Fama, Professor Fama, they got onto the advisor board, and then of course we have a mutual fund board. So Myron Scholes uh, joined the mutual fund board from their day one. Merton Miller joined the mutual fund board from day one. And of course, there are another two Nobel Prize winners. Uh, then later in the uh, late 80s, uh, Ken, uh, I think, had moved to Chicago, started working more closely with Gene. Uh, so that's Ken French, Professor Ken French. He's now at Dartmouth. Uh, had been working more closely with Gene Fama. And uh, a lot of academics have come along and worked with Dimensional over time. So Bob Merton, another Nobel Prize winner, is what we call a resident scientist. But if you look at the mutual fund board, you have people like Roger Ibbotson, you have people like George Constantinides, you have Daryl Duffy, who's a massive figure when it comes to fixed income investing, Abby Smith, who's massive when it comes to corporate governance and accounting type uh, issues. You have Ingrid Werner, who's massive when it comes to uh, you know, market microstructure. So you have, you know, who is who on the on the mutual fund board uh, here over in, in the U.S. And, you know, we have a lot of great conversations with them. So back to the early 90s and Ken and Gene were doing their research at that point in time. And effectively, at that point, the, uh, the capital asset pricing model, it was getting tested empirically. And what people were finding was that it didn't really hold empirically. 
So the capital asset pricing model basically predicted that the only variation that you should see in, in returns should be related to a company's covariance with the overall market. And that was kind of the, the outcome of, of that model. So how much did you move with the market? Did you go up a lot more when the market went up and down a lot more when the market went down or up a lot less and down a lot less? And that was kind of the, the accepted model at that point in time. And empirically, that wasn't holding. That when you sorted stocks on other variables besides uh, how uh, tightly coupled they were to the market returns, you were able to generate differences in returns that were not well explained at all by how they moved in relation to the market. So that was the 81 observation was one of those observations with company size. Uh, there was also observations in the 80s where it was, you know, price to earnings, price to book, things like that. And what Ken and Gene did in the early 90s was they aggregated all of that in a very, very comprehensive framework to really test. Uh, and there was two sets of papers to really test, okay, what's going on here? And can we come up with sorting stocks on various characteristics that pick up common variation among stocks so that we can explain the returns of other stocks. And that's effectively what a, a factor is. You wanna go long, small, short, large caps, and then that gives you a factor. That's not an investment strategy. That's a strategy that helps you explain the returns of other stocks. So they uh, published the three factor model in the nineties, which basically said that uh, if you look back in the US, small cap stocks that had higher average returns than large cap, value stocks that had higher average returns than growth stocks, and value is low price to fundamental, growth is high price to fundamental. And the combination of those two observations together explained the returns quite well of broadly diversified portfolios. So you could take a broadly diversified portfolio and say the market's return was 10%, its return was 12%, and you could use that those two observations to say, where did that extra 2% come from? Did it come from the fact that they were overweight small and overweight value or something else, right? So it gave you a framework to explain the returns of other broadly diversified portfolios. And of course, in 92, uh, Dimensional had started as a small cap. In 83, we had added fixed income. Uh, in the late 80s, we had done small cap pretty much all over the world. Uh, in 92 was when the value portfolios came along and we started doing value uh, investing uh, in the U.S., in large, small, and non-U.S. developed markets, uh, and then in the later 90s in emerging markets. Uh, so that's when kind of that, that began. Uh, since then, and if you think about the economic underpinnings of, of what they were um, kind of discovering in the data, uh, if you will, it's a discount rate effect, effectively. Uh, people often ask me, you know, what do you think would make the value premium disappear or the size premium disappear or the profitability premium disappear? And effectively, my response is, well, if all stocks have the same expected return, you shouldn't expect any of those premiums. Now, people are a bit taken aback by that. What do you mean? All stocks don't have the same expected return. I say, of course they don't. I agree. They do not. But then if you look at something about expected cash flows to shareholders and the price that people are willing to pay, those combined tell you about a discount rate. The lower the price, the higher the expected cash flows, the higher the discount rate, the higher the expected return that the market is demanding to hold those stocks. So that three-factor model evolved into a five-factor model where basically you have company size and relative price tell you something about low price, scaling price to get to a low price, and profitability and investment, which think of asset growth, how quickly are you growing your balance sheet? They tell you something about 
the expected cash flows and predict future cash flows to the shareholders. So that's a, a typical, you know, fundamental view of the world done in a systematic fashion that says, I just want to look for those stocks with higher discount rates. Tell me something about the price people are willing to pay today and what cash flows they may get tomorrow. Can I do that in a systematic way, a well-diversified way? Answer, yes. If I do it, does it explain historical returns? Answer, yes. If I do it and I look in the historical data set, do I find patterns? And this goes back to your earlier comment, Ainsley, about, you know, there's a lot of noise in the data. Do I find patterns in the data that I can uh, be confident happen by more than just chance? These are there by more than just chance. Answer, yes. So you go through all of, all of that and, and you kind of get to this uh, kind of viewpoint of what's a good way to increase the expected returns of equity portfolios in real world environments. Hmm, perfect. No, and, and uh, appreciate that. There's a lot of you've read my mind in terms of the, uh, the the topics we cover, and I'd love to unpack some of it. So, so obviously, um, a little while ago, starting from the, the sort of three factor model, which was obviously the, the workhorse model for a lot of asset pricing um, literature. Uh, eventually there were there were more factors discovered and added um, uh, or, or, or not uh, based on you know um, different views between maybe practitioners and academics or between different academics um, so so in, in in terms of how that's evolved from from that original three factor model and, and you you sort of hinted at a, at a few um, new additions maybe we can talk about some of the um, the sort of new factors that have come along um, uh, as well as maybe some of the some, some of the criticisms of the original factors I, 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 in recent years so so um, maybe a slight slight tangent but starting with another one which is momentum the tendency for um, recent winning stocks to outperform recent losing stocks um, and that's been a very strong effect on paper how do you, how do you guys view the the momentum literature and, and how have those insights made their way into into your portfolios yeah, you're, you're 100% right, Inzi, and that's, that's one that's an interesting one because it's not something that a valuation framework of the world would say you should expect from the data, right? So that, that's the key. What should I expect from the data? Should I expect to see that the returns of stocks going forward that have outperformed the market should continue to outperform the market and the returns of those that have underperformed the market continue to underperform? And there's no real good model out there. There's a, you know, there's a few different models, but none of them are really satisfactory you know, underreaction, overreaction, things of that nature. They're not super satisfactory at explaining uh, the observations that you see in the data. So you wouldn't have expected it up front, but you see it very, very strongly in the data, right? So it comes through as a very, very pronounced effect in the data. But what you'll observe when you look at it in the data is that it also comes with a lot of turnover. And that goes back to this noise question. Short-term returns tend to be noisy, right? They you can be outperforming one month and underperforming the next month and so on. So you can, it's a lot of a lot of noise in the data. So when you look at it, and you alluded to this, when you look at it on, a, you know, on a computer simulation, it looks fantastic. It has very, very high returns and nice sharp ratios, all of those types of things. Uh, it can be helpful in a factor model to help explain the returns of other broadly diversified portfolios. But on a computer simulation, it comes with large amounts of turnover. Most of the academic work, especially in the early years, when that we're looking at momentum rebalance monthly. And so you'd have these portfolios that were being formed on a computer that were maybe, you know, 100%, 200%, 300% turnover per year. And of course, in the real world, that comes with certain costs. And are those costs associated with real world implementation uh, high enough, then that momentum may not be 
uh, as attractive as it looks on a computer. Because when you look at size, value, profitability, and, uh, and to a lesser extent, investment, those come with relatively low turnover. You get them, you can do a computer simulation that rebalances one time per year, and you can look at that in the historical data. It's moderate turnover, it's not high turnover. So you can be much more confident that you can capture those in a low turnover real world portfolio. So we've looked at all of those data points and you know you can look at Ken French's website. That's It's become the standard. Uh, people go there to get their uh, value factors, their profitability factors, their investment, their size, and also the momentum factors. So you can find those on Ken's uh, website. Uh, you can find them all there going back almost 100 years in the US here and then outside the US in developed markets and in certain countries like the UK and so on split out uh, separately. So you can, you can get all, all of those data on his website. And the way that we view it is that it's in the data. We don't know why it should be in the data. And that tells us we don't know what conditions must have to change for it to disappear out of the data. So we know for value, as an example, the way that value disappears is if all stocks have the same expected return. It's not impossible. It's highly improbable. And so we have confidence that that's not going to disappear out of the data. For momentum, it's not clear at all why it's in there. So it's not clear why it might persist going forward. So that's one item. Item two is that it would require a large amount of turnover uh, to implement it in a really, I call it like an academic type of a, of a simulation. And that turnover comes with opportunity cost. You know, there's a, a, a Professor Murphy uh, who's at the University of Chicago has done, uh, you know, a lot of presentations for Dimensional over time. He's, he's a good friend of the firm. And he has this great analogy for opportunity cost, <clears throat> which is if your kids watch six hours of TV a day, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the uh, answer depends on more information. You can't answer that question by itself. If the alternative is you're teaching them poetry, philosophy, mathematics. It's a terrible thing. The opportunity cost is huge to watching six hours of TV a day. On the other hand, if the alternative is they're going to be out in the streets, getting into all sorts of trouble and mischief, it's probably a great thing. So it depends on the alternative. We know with investing, especially in equities, a good alternative is invest in the market. Oh, the global market at market cap weights, it's low turnover. You can get it at relatively low cost. It is a good alternative. So when you decide to deviate from the market, you kind of measure yourself versus the market on different metrics. One metric is turnover. The market has naturally low turnover. If I have a strategy with very, very high turnover, okay, now I'm deviating a lot on that particular characteristic. That comes with a lot of opportunity costs because if momentum turns out to be zero going forward, you've incurred all these trading costs and potentially tax implications associated with that strategy that haven't led to higher returns. So I think that uh, those two by themselves uh, imply that what we do with that particular piece of information is we say, let's say we want to buy a stock. Now we have 20 value stocks to choose from. In reality, there's more than 20, there's hundreds, but we have 20 to choose from. And some are in downward momentum and some are in upward momentum. Well, we just hold off buying the stocks in downward momentum and buy the ones that are in upward momentum. And we can do that because in a value portfolio with 20, 25% turnover, when you buy a stock, you expect to hold it for four or five years. Momentum dissipates over the course of a few months. So those that are in down, you know, this month, next month, the month after, may be in neutral or up going forward. So you have plenty of time to work your way into the stock. Similarly, on the, on the flip side, 
how does value how does the value premium get realized value stocks move over to become growth stocks and they outperform the market they're often in upper momentum when a value stock moves to become a growth stock take your time in selling it if it's an upper momentum that's telling you something about expected returns over the next couple of months so you don't need to sell it immediately so momentum basically the way it manifests itself in our strategies is with patience uh, it's kind of this approach of how do you want to use your patience how do you want to use your turnover so that you can take advantage of something that could potentially be high cost if you were to allow it to uh, drive turnover, uh, but you can take advantage of it in a very, very low cost way. Uh, so agree with you, it's in the data, uh, something that you should be aware of, uh, and something that I think that we've come up with a very nice solution uh, to integrating into how we manage money. Hmm. Okay, and you touched on some very interesting points there in terms of, you know, some of, the, some of the caveats with, oh, just, just looking at a back test that works very well and then being able to implement it, but also being able to form expectations with it. Uh, and before we move on to some of the um, the, the other factors are very interesting. Um, uh, the, one of the first things you mentioned about momentum was in terms of the um, the rationale. So under reaction, over reaction, you felt it wasn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't particularly robust in that sense. Um, maybe you can, you know, talk about that a little bit more because that's very interesting in terms of interpreting um, economic rationale and uh, what what constitutes uh, ro ro robust or not. How, how do you think about that? And, and you know, in terms of the 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 explanations for momentum, you know, what what, what stuck out about them that that meant they, you know, the, you, you had less confidence in those. Yeah, it's not that I I will. So when I think about prices as predictions of the future, they're not perfect because no prediction of the future is perfect. And so it may well be the case that sometimes markets overreact and sometimes markets underreact. That, that's a possibility. Uh, but the question that you have to ask yourself then is if prices have some aspect associated with them that tends to be systematically wrong, so systematically overpriced or systematically underpriced, do you see that translated into excess returns of active managers, so managers that are trying to outguess market prices historically? Because if there were a lot of these, I guess I'll call them, you know, uh, free opportunities lying around, uh, then you should be able to find them in the returns of active managers. And what you find when you analyze those returns is that the distribution of returns from active managers looks a lot like the distribution that you would get purely by chance. So you probably have a bit more in the left tail, so underperformance than you would get by chance, but it looks a lot like chance. So that you can't really tell if a manager had outperformed because they were outguessing market prices and picking the right stocks if they got lucky or if it was just chance. And when you look at the number of funds, you know, there's a, I'll just use the US as an example, 4,000 plus funds that you can pick from at any point in time. Of course, some of those are going to have very good future returns and some of those are going to have very poor future returns. The question is, okay, which of those happen by chance or not? So that, that's one very compelling piece of evidence that if there are all of these mispricings in the data, that hmm, you don't see much evidence or compelling evidence that people have been able to exploit that systematically, right? So that, that's an important input. So that means when it comes to theories like underreaction and overreaction, it may happen from time to time, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody really does know. Uh, but then that doesn't gel with the performance data that you see from active managers who have probably used things like momentum, like you'll read stuff like momentum pre-90s that goes back a, a, a very, very long time. 
The other piece then that didn't sit too well with the various different uh, theories is ultimately you have to think that there's going to be two things that may change aggregate demand. Aggregate demand is what changes prices. If you have a change in aggregate demand, it goes up, prices change. If you have a change in aggregate demand, it goes down, prices change. And you think about there's probably two big drivers there. One is differences in the risk associated with any investment opportunity. And another, maybe people's preferences. And, and Femme and French have a paper on this, um, on disagreements, tastes, and, and so on uh, from uh, quite a number of years ago. And so those are the, the two things. With momentum, it's hard to imagine how, and when you look at the size and the historical data, it's hard to imagine how uh, that aggregate demand can change so much from one month to the next to drive uh, this magnitude of the premiums, whether it's due to underreaction or overreaction. So those uh, just, they're, they're not in, in massively compelling explanations for something in the historical data. They're also not massively compelling because uh, my view on if, if for some reason there's been some overreaction or underreaction in the historical data and the market learns about it, then you shouldn't expect it to persist going forward. Right? Once you learn something new, you generally correct for your mistakes, not all the time, but much of the time, especially when there's money on the line. And especially if you get it wrong, you stand to lose money. You generally try to uh, correct your mistakes. So then as a persistence item, it's not a great conversation at me, uh, for me at least, for, for persistence. So there's some of the, the kind of the, the rationale uh, where, uh, you know, I would lean one way. But in, in the end of the day, what it comes down to is I can give you my opinion and I've given you my opinion, but my opinion may be wrong. Anybody's opinion may be wrong at any point in time. And the question comes then, can you use the information while not doing harm? And that really is, is the key. Can you take the information and uh, put it to use in such a way that whether your opinion is right or wrong, you've actually improved the outcome for investors. And I think that's how we've uh, taken and used momentum is regardless of our opinion, uh, uh, whether our opinion is right or wrong, we're using it in a way that is a kind of a zero opportunity cost. If uh, if momentum persists for the next 100 years, you get value add. If momentum disappears for the next 100 years, you get what you would have had without a momentum screen. I think that's the key is uh, you're going to learn things as you go through life. So uh, I'll quote Gene uh, Fama, um, you're going to make uh, uh, lots of uh, mistakes by accident. So don't make mistakes on purpose. Uh, and I think I look on this one as, as try not to make a mistake on purpose. <laughs> mm, no, that's very, very interesting. Um, and, and, you know, it leads nicely on to, so, so you mentioned the, um, the profitability factor, obviously. Um, the, since, since the, the three-factor model, there's, um, there's been the five-factor model and a few, few developments since, but focusing on, 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 on the five-factor um, iteration, um, it, it'd just be great to hear sort of your, your, your personal experience since it happened whilst, whilst you're at, um, I say it happened, it was published whilst you're at Dimensional, but obviously there had been a research for some time. Um, and, and since, you know, uh, Gene and Ken have been long-time advisors, uh, you know, what, 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 what was it like sort of behind the scenes, given that it was, you know, and the, the three-factor model was such a, you know, a, a mainstay of research for a long time, then, you know, add, add, adding something in there, maybe, maybe uh, it'd be good to hear your perspectives. Um, yeah. Um, so it's interesting. It's, you know, when you look back since the 90s, uh, basically the way I view it at least is that Ken and Gene and others probably uh, kind of outlined a framework. And it was a framework that allowed you to construct empirically factor models and then test them 
And then there was lots of tests and so on that got added on on how you could test one factor model versus another and say if one is better than another, who dominates and all that sort of thing. But they started that kind of a framework. And then since then, that framework has been used and used and used and used and used uh, by many different academics. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have hundreds of different factor models out there now. Uh, and so that was that was always the case throughout the 90s and the 2000s. There was just always, oh, I have a new model and, I, and it works better than the three factor model uh, uh, because they have the benefit of hindsight and, and testing because that became the benchmark. <clears throat> so if you could beat the three factor model, and then you got a, yourself an academic paper. So there was massive incentives to beat the three-factor model, regardless of if that was because of your selection. Because when you have the benefit of hindsight, you can go in and say, okay, let me try a hundred different things. And now I get one that beats the three-factor model, I got a paper. I'm not showing you the 99 that didn't uh, beat it, I'm showing you the one that did. So you have that massive bias in, in, in that academic kind of uh, literature. Uh, so we would always take those with a not a, a grain of I, we call it an air of skepticism whenever we see something new we say we want to test it ourselves we want to test it in the context of what we already know and then we want to test it in ways that maybe is not presented in the paper so we kind of find out where the bodies are buried so what what happened was this was in like the mid 2000s uh, we were doing work on small caps and in particular what we were looking at were this kind of combination of small cap stocks that were growthy under multiple different metrics. So they looked like growth stocks under price to book, price to earnings, price to sales. And those stocks had very, very poor returns, historical returns. And uh, so poor that if for those stocks, you didn't see a small cap premium. They underperformed their large cap counterparts. And so we had started excluding those stocks from purchase, but we didn't have the right type of framework in place. And we were having a conversation with Ken and Jean and Gene mentioned there was this new paper by Professor Novi Marx, uh, who uh, now works with the firm. And effectively, Ken and Gene in, in like the early 2000s had had this paper on investment profitability. And it was, a, it was a great paper, but the results weren't as strong as you might like. And Professor Novi Marx then came along uh, like in the early uh, 2010s with a, a paper that uh, kind of re-looked at that evidence and found uh, uh, more compelling evidence and I'll describe in a minute why and I said you should look at that paper and maybe what you're finding is an artifact of, of what's going on there. So we did a bunch of work internally. We took uh, Professor Novi Mark's paper, we reproduced all the results. We did it then in the US, we did it outside the US, so we extended it uh, to non-US developed and emerging markets. We back tested it, we shook it all up and we said how robust is this? And it was very, very robust, the research team. Uh, and myself included at that, at that time uh, was doing that work. And so we were doing this in, uh, the whole time talking with Ken and Jean uh, about, the, uh, about the outcomes. And it was around that time that we said, okay, there's really something here that if you get the right measure of profitability, something that excludes extraordinary line items, extraordinary expenses, one-time uh, discontinued operations or things of that nature, uh, that that is a good predictor of future profitability. So it predicts one element of future cash flows to shareholders. And if you combine it with size and value, now you have another very complementary type of piece of information. You have something that's telling you something about future cash flows, and you have something that's telling you something about low price relative to those future cash flows. So that combination turned out to be a powerful combination. And uh, Ken and Gene recognized the, the power of that combination uh, as well. So based on some of the work that we had done and Professor Novi Marx had done, 
uh, they put together the, uh, the five-factor paper. And effectively, how you can think about it is, uh, as I mentioned before, profitability predicts future profitability. And if you think about cash flows to shareholders, it's profits basically minus investments. Think about investments of how you grow your balance sheet. So uh, are your assets growing very, very quickly? If your assets are growing very, very quickly uh, because you're maybe retaining earnings or, or things of that nature, well, then you're not paying that money out to shareholders. So that lowers expected cash flows to shareholders. So it's profits minus investments. And effectively, then the, the five-factor model became size, value, so company size relative to others, uh, price relative to some fundamental, a prediction of future profitability, which is one part of cash flows to shareholders, and asset growth, which predicts another part of cash flows to shareholders. And you combine that with a market factor and you got the five-factor model. Uh, and it worked very well. And so it was uh, kind of uh, very nice to see that whole uh, innovation and uh, kind of combination of the practitioners and the academics uh, all working together to come with something that I think uh, helped both the understanding in academia, but also uh, helped improve our investment strategies at the time. Mm. Yeah, because I think that that is something that, you know, in my experience, at least a lot of practitioners misunderstand is, is that really profitability and investment is just going back to that discounted cash flow sort of um, fundamental view of, of, of asset pricing. And, and it's just the cash flow element that complements the, the, the value side, if you like. But um, no, no, you know, in terms of um, the uh, talking about the some of the noise within with the research you mentioned, you know, there's many, many other factor models out there, Um, and and also in terms of um, the the uh, from the maybe maybe more so from the practitioner side, but some of the criticisms of 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 some of the um, the way that the traditional academic factors are built, like value, for example, is, is using price to book ratios, as we spoke about. Um, and I guess this links to, to what, we, what, what we just mentioned. The um, uh, one, one, one question, for example, is, is that um, as, as a metric, it's, it's not as useful now that there's more intangibles, uh, companies more, 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 um, uh, there's more focus on that. And, uh, you know, uh, in terms of um, the effect of share buybacks, which has been a bit more um, prominent in, in, in the US in recent years, it's something that they suggest uh, price to, the price to book ratio in, in particular isn't, um, doesn't capture. So that's led some practitioners to add other value metrics or, or change the way they define value. Um, could you tell us your view in terms of the definition of value and, you know, um, um, you know some, 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 some of the points that, that, I, that I mentioned, Dimensional's views is actually quite unique on, on this. Yeah, yeah, the, there's a few points that you mentioned in there. One is uh, what's been termed as the so-called factor zoo. And I'll give you just a couple of high levels on that and then the Fama French uh, model itself. And then also uh, the, uh, I guess I'll give it a, a view on, on um, some of the other variables for value. When I look back over the past, uh, you know, 20, 30 years, and you look at all the various different factor models that have been uh, presented, I find it interesting because there's probably three main areas of information that people go to. Market prices, data from an income statement, data from a balance sheet. And there's two things that they do with those three pieces of information. They look at current values, so current market prices, maybe scaled by book value or earnings or something like that, or multiplied by shares outstanding to get market cap. They look at changes in those values. So momentum, what's the change in price over the past three to six months? They do two things with three data sets. 
that gives you six things, six things you can do. And uh, when you look at the 400 plus factors out there, they're basically some variant of those six things, uh, all with a slight different flavor. And so it, it's kind of, it, I find that that's how I categorize, you know, you can do six things with the data that you have uh, and you can put it together in different ways. And no doubt that you'll find in a back test uh, superior combinations from one way versus another, but that doesn't tell you too much about what you should expect going forward. So that, that I think is important. When you look at dimensional, we use current prices, we use changes in prices, we use uh, information from income statements, uh, we use information from the balance sheet, we use changes in information from the balance sheet, and we're doing research right now on changes in information from the income statement. So we're doing all six things that you can do, uh, which is relatively complete. And the Femme French itself, and, and I'll, I'll get onto this uh, in, in a moment, it presents a very, very interesting and I think unique asset pricing test out of all the asset pricing tests that you see. And so what do I mean by that? So there's a, a common uh, kind of a, I'll call it a criticism for want of, better, of a better term, that when you test data in sample, you have to take that inference then um, with the fact that you tested in sample. What does in sample mean? Well, I had a data set. I could look at it in lots of different ways. And I found a result after I searched that data set, maybe five, six, seven, 10, a hundred different ways. I found a result once I searched the data set enough. And so the original uh, Fama French research was done from uh, the 60s to the 90s. That was the original data sample. And they came with their methodology for measuring value and constructing factors on that data sample. That's in sample. But what's very unique is that we've now had uh, four out of sample tests where the tests have been run in a way that's very, very similar to that first in sample test. You have Jim Davis came along, he used to work at Dimensional, he retired uh, recently. And he was a professor before he joined Dimensional. And he worked with Ken and Jean on uh, gathering data from the 20s to the 60s. So book value data from the 20s to the 60s. So that was the first out of sample test. Take the exact same methodology that was used on the in sample, test it out of sample. What you get, you get the same type of observation, value premium, size premiums. Then in the 90s and into the 2000s, non-US developed market data came along. Emerging market data came along. Two more independent data samples used the same testing methodology as was developed in that first data sample period in the 60s to the 90s in the US, and you tested it on those, you saw value premiums. Then you had the post-90 period in the US where you saw positive value premiums, but they weren't reliably different from zero. So now you have five samples. And so this is, I think this is almost a unique experiment in all the experiments that I've seen uh, in academia where in four of the five, you have reliable value uh, premiums uh, around the world. And that, that's unique. And where you, where, you didn't, where you did the tests in one data sample and then you applied it the same way in all other data samples. So that, that's a very, very impressive test. That doesn't mean that I can't come along and tweak some variables uh, to get a better result in the history or the historical back tests. But then you have to evaluate that as I had the benefit of hindsight. Right. The other test I mentioned, there was no hindsight use. It was just take that test and apply it and see what you get. So I think that's that's a, a powerful observation, at least in my view. Now, when it comes to the criticisms 
you know, I share share of purchases I find amusing because share of purchases impact book value and prices the same way as dividends do. And companies have paid dividends for a long period of time. So why aren't you worried about companies paying dividends when you're uh, basically what changes, in my view, a company's approach to getting cash back to shareholders is tax code. When the tax code suggests that it's more advantageous from an after-tax perspective to get cash back to shareholders from dividends versus share of purchases, you get more dividends. When it's better for share of purchases versus dividends, you get more share of purchases. And I think that not many people would be so fooled that because, uh, you know, an earnings per share or a book value per share ratio changes, uh, that that's somehow, you know, that you're getting fooled by that. that that's not plausible to me at all. Uh, so that one doesn't really carry too much weight. Now, the intangibles one is a very interesting one uh, because, again, there uh, you have this kind of analysis that some folks have done to say, okay, can I come with a better uh, measure of value? And the answer is you have to take that in the context of backtest bias. But intangibles, uh, there's two forms. One form is I'm company A, I go by company B. So let's say I'm Disney, I go by Lucasfilms. Disney bought Lucasfilms for four billion bucks. Two billion was reflected in goodwill. Two billion was reflected in uh, intangibles out of that acquisition. So now Disney has four billion dollars back when it did the acquisition many, many years ago of intangible assets on their balance sheet. So those intangible assets are reflected on Disney's balance sheet and they can get depreciated and amortize all that sort of stuff over time. And so these are assets where they're not brick and mortar, but Lucasfilms had a lot of intellectual property. Uh, They had a lot of know-how, they had a lot of brand value, they had human capital, they had a lot of great things. And the value of an asset is purely its future cash flows discounted back to the day. So Disney determined that the value of those assets were $4 billion and that's reflected on the balance sheet. So when you go out and you acquire those assets externally, they're reflected on your balance sheet. And that's very, very sensible on on book values. It's very sensible because you go through often a competitive bidding process. You actually get a real price for what those assets are worth. And there's a real transaction that tells you what that price is. Now, let's say Lucasfilms, before it was purchased, would have all those intangibles have been reflected on Lucasfilms' balance sheet? No. Can you estimate them? Well, you can try. And the way that people generally estimate them is by taking things like uh, selling general administrative uh, or taking R&D, and rather than expensing those line items, they capitalize them. So they take them off the income statement and they put them on the balance sheet, right? So that's that's the, the approach. Now, there's a couple of issues with that. One issue is that it's an incredibly noisy estimate. So if you look at the, if you, if you look at M&A deals and you say, uh, let me estimate the value of the intangible assets that that company has before it's bought. And then you go through a competitive bidding process with this process. You take R&D and you capitalize it. You take SG&A and you capitalize it. And you look, you try to estimate a value versus the bidding process. It's a very bad prediction of what the actual intangible value is. And that's understandable. There's a reason that accountants uh, prefer you to expense it than capitalize it because most R&D that you do doesn't lead to value for for future shareholders. A lot of it doesn't work. Uh, That's just the nature of R&D. So it's massively uncertain. That's one aspect associated with it. But the other aspect that I think that is equally important is if I take something off the income statement and I put it on the balance sheet, 
then I have to test what the implication for profitability as well as value is at the same time. So if I take value, a value factor, and I add profitability into it, well, I know that both of those are related to uh, returns. Can I do better, potentially? But now if I test them in conjunction, because while if I take stuff off the income statement and I put it on the balance sheet, the book value goes up, so the price to book goes down. But the book value goes up, the income or the earnings also goes up because I've taken off expenses, which goes up faster, the earnings or the, or the assets? And that's an empirical question. It turns out that on average, the profitability goes down. So you make it look more attractive from a value perspective, you make it look less attractive from a profit scaled uh, by uh, book or assets. And when you test them conjointly, you don't see much benefit to trying to estimate internal uh, developed intangibles. Uh, I think that if we could come with great estimates, really precise estimates, uh, we'd love we'd love that. Uh, and we continue to work towards that. But as it stands, the estimates are so imprecise that it's not that helpful to adjust book value one way or another. And in fact, when you look back historically and you look at by sector, uh, the amount of uh, internally developed intangibles estimated, so you estimate those, you don't have them, you estimate them, scale by assets. It's actually been a very static number over time, very static. And that's because uh, the if you if you do it by property, plant and equipment, it's not static. But when you do it scale by total assets, it's very static. And that's true by sector. So what you really worry about with intangibles is if you get sector biases in your portfolio. And from based on those data, you wouldn't. But then you can also control that and how you manage money. Just make sure that your sector weights don't deviate too far from the market and you won't get sector biases. Uh, so that's another reason about why we say now there's no need yet to put that incredibly noisy estimate at the book value because we're already controlling for the potential unintended outcome that you might get if you have differences in how the uh, book values look across sectors, which is by looking uh, and at sector weights uh, and controlling sector weights inside a strategy too. Mm, perfect. Uh, and, and I'm conscious of time, but I, I did, you know, we, we have talked about noise, noise in markets, noise in, in, in sort of, you know, some of the academic literature, but also in terms of noise from an idiosyncratic risk perspective. Uh, and, and going back to a point you mentioned um, very early on is that a lot of these factors, you know, explain returns in relatively diversified portfolios. So so now they're well known, you know, there may be investors inclined to use, oh, um, these factors, but to pick individual stocks, oh, I want to pick a cheap stock that's, you know, small got profitability, etc. Um, in, in terms of the appropriate levels of diversification to capture these theoretical premiums, maybe you can talk about your, 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 your views there and what the research says. Yeah, the, the diversification has multiple benefits in my view. Uh, one is just on implementation. If you can become broadly diversified, but at the same time, uh, keep all of your custodial costs and so on low, uh, that broad diversification gives you massive flexibility when it comes to implementing. Whether that's trading, deciding what to buy, what to sell, you have lots of choices and flexibility or optionality has value. We know this. Uh, Myron Scholes and Bob Merton, we work with them. We know that options have value. Uh, so, so we know this. Optionality has value. Uh, so from just a pure you know, perspective, if you can get broadly diversified at a reasonable cost inside a portfolio, how you manage the portfolio, that has value. Now, when you now look historically at how these premiums, whether it's the equity premium, 
or the value premium or the profitability premium or the size premium, had they been realized each year, like in a, in a year when the equity markets are up by eight or 10%, it's not that every stock in the market is up by eight or 10%, it's that some are up by massively more than the eight or 10% and some are down by massively more than the eight or 10%. And if unless you can predict which of those stocks are going to be the ones that are contributing to the positive return, you're going to ha increase your probability of actually missing, right? So I think that uh, the way that we look on these premiums is that uh, they're driven by year on year, they're driven by a handful of stocks. If you don't hold those handful of stocks, you miss the premium that year. Therefore, hold them all, be very broadly diversified uh, in a systematic way, a diversified way, uh, such that you have those stocks that give you the premium in uh, the year or whenever they may give you the premium. I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, at the start of, of last year, I don't know, of this year, 2021, we all know the GME and uh, the, the price that had in, in the portfolios, uh, or the price that that had in the market and the, and the massive appreciation. That was a micro cap stock uh, in January. It was uh, getting great security lending revenue and uh, it, it was a, a stock that was held in, in many of our, our small cap and small value and micro cap strategies and our core strategies that overweight small and value. Well, in a period of a week or two, it went from a micro cap stock to being one of the biggest stocks in the US. Who would have predicted that two weeks in advance? I don't know, nobody. Uh, but if you held it and then you took the opportunity to sell it out of a small cap strategy because it was no longer small cap, well, okay. You have that stock that turned out to give you a nice handsome payoff and a nice handsome contributor to the size premium and the value premium over the, subsequent, or the early months of 2021. Uh, but if you didn't have that stock, you didn't get that. Now, that's just an example of you never know what stocks are for what reasons they're going to contribute to a positive size, value, equity, profitability, whatever premium you want to list. So it's important to have them all so you're there to get it uh, when the when the premiums show up. Mm, perfect. Joe, we could uh, talk for hours and hours, but um, you know, I'm conscious of time as well. Thank, thank you so much for, for, for joining us, and I'm sure our audience will really you know, um, benefit from, from all your insights. Is there anything you'd, you'd like to sign off on before we, um, before we finish? Uh, no, just thank you, Ainsley. It's a real pleasure having a chance to chat with you, and um, looking forward to many more conversations in the future, and, and I hope this is helpful for your audience. Uh, and kind of is a bit of food for thought and, and uh, helps them think through some of the uh, the kind of stuff they're seeing in the media. We have this uh, view here at Dimensional, which is kind of tuning out the noise uh, that, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the media, but the incentives of the media is to get clicks or to get readership. And you don't get readership by saying, we think the equity premium is 8%. We think the equity premium is 8%. We think the equity premium is 8%. That doesn't get you a lot of readership. Uh, so you just have to recognize that there's a lot of incentives there to get you to read. And it can be fun to read, uh, but tune out the noise when it comes to your investment approach. Take that long-term view and the probability of you having a successful investment experience goes up with the longer horizon as long as you have a, a good systematic approach. And folks like yourself, Ainsley, I think are, are, are great, uh, uh, great, you know, kind of advocates for that and really help uh, your clients maintain that long-term view. So, so we appreciate that. Mm. Thank you so much, Gerard, and, and thank you, thank you to our audience. Uh, until next time, uh, goodbye. And that wraps up this edition of the Credo Fireside Chat. 
We'd like to thank Gerald O'Reilly for appearing and sharing his views on data-driven financial research. And thank you for listening. Please contact Credo if you have any questions or comments, or if you'd like to invest, you can find us at www.credogroup.com. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.